Okay. Hi, this is Tokyo US Brand Manager Ian Harvey. I'm here with Jim Fredericks. Jim Fredericks started, the, started Nordic skiing at Johnson State College and then became its head coach for all ski sports starting in 1973. As well as being one of the East's fastest racers, Jim worked at Craftsbury starting their Nordic Center. Jim then turned to coaching starting the successful Green Mountain Valley School Nordic program. From 1986 to 2006, Jim ran the Nordic Race Department at Rosignol, which really defined his career. A Vermonter through and through when Rosignol moved from Vermont to Utah, Jim remained in Vermont and took the role of Catamount Trail Association's executive director. Jim also started the Race to the Top of Vermont, a run and bike up Mount Mansfield's toll road. Jim and his wife Joanne live an active life skiing, paddling, cycling, and running in northern Vermont near Craftsbury, Vermont, uh, Greensboro. Jim has been a mentor for me for so much of my ski racing and professional career, and I really appreciate him being with me here today. So, Jim, thank you very much for making yourself available for this interview, which I know will be very popular. You've had a profound effect on many people's ski racing careers and have touched so many lives, including mine. Thanks, Ian. Really appreciate you having me on. It makes me feel uh, makes me feel important for a change. <laughs> you are. <laughs> okay. Well, let's start out by, if you wouldn't mind, tell us how you got into Nordic skiing. Well, I was an alpine racer. Not a, I was a good a good skier, uh, but when I went to Johnson State College, uh, they the first two strings. Uh, I was like on the third string team. They, we had five national team skier alpine racers on our team at the time. And they wouldn't even race the college races. They'd be going off racing Norams or everything else. And the college racing at that time, we weren't in the NCAA thing. So they were just kind of racing against the smaller schools. And uh, so at that time, uh, one of the, the dean of students at Johnson State asked me if I wanted to try cross-country skiing. And I always wanted to do it, but I just never really had the opportunity. And so he said, I got equipment. Let's, uh, let's get you on some, some equipment and try it out. So I tried, they had some Yarvinen skis, old wooden Yarvinen skis. I got on them and I loved it from the very beginning because I was a, I was a decent foot runner. I think I was, you know, I was in uh, college, I was top five in college in, the, in our conference and stuff like that. So, um, so I, it was perfect for me. And I'd always heard about all these other these skiers, you know, these Nordic skiers like Mike Gallagher, because he was such a great runner, phenomenal runner, and how good, how tough these guys were. And as soon as I got into the sport, I learned more about them. And back then, you had a chance to meet them at different races, because you had all these citizen races, and they would race the citizen races as well as the Eastern races at that time or the national races. So that's when, I, that's when I got into it, and it was just a club. We didn't have a Nordic pro, we didn't have a Nordic team, it was just a club program. And so I never, in college, I never raced a collegiate race. Huh. I only raced in club races. My first race was the Washington's birthday race in Putney. I went like crazy. I'd been, I'd been on skis for two weeks. I was going like crazy, putting everything out. I was in good shape and everything. And these old guys would go by me like I was standing still. I couldn't believe it, you know, because I didn't have any technique or whatever. But soon I So you referred to uh, those citizens' races. 
in the seventies, I raced two races every year. The, the Washington's birthday race generally in Putney and the Paul Revere cup at Fort Devens. Do you remember the Paul? Revere? Oh yeah, yeah. That was the other big one. I, re I remember I've never raced that one, but I remember it. That wasn't too far from where I grew up. So we raced that one. But if my recollection, those are the two big citizen races in the East at the time. Is that right? Uh, pretty much. There was, there was one called, uh, what was it? Rogers Rangers race that would go the length of uh, Lake George. And it was, it was a pretty big race in, in New York. And then all of a sudden the marathon started popping up but it was a little bit later that they started Danon, The Danon races. Yeah, and then the Danon races, exactly. Yeah, yeah. The Danon races were, the, were key things. And that's when I really started to become a better skier. I remember racing one of those races when I was in college and it was in, it was in Jericho, Vermont. It was at a place called Trollheim. It was a touring center. Oh. And you, most of the US team was there and whatever. And uh, I was, after, I know I had a fairly good race. I was looking at the results afterwards and this, and everybody's looking at the results. And so and so and says, who the hell is that guy, Jim Fredericks, you know, cause I was right at the top of the results, right? I was like maybe third or something like that. And, uh, and it, it was Fred Fayette said that. He didn't know me oh. at the time. And I said, I'm Jim Fredericks. <laughs> so, so it was, and then Fred and I since said they have become phenomenal friends. Yeah. Can you tell the listeners who Fred is? Obviously, he's an iconic UVM supporter and figure. Fred, Fred is the most friendly person you'll ever meet in skiing. And he has worked for UVM as their assistant coach forever. Forever. Since, I mean, for 20, 25 years probably at least doesn't take a penny doesn't take a penny for his work and he he is the moral fiber of that of that team when kids are down he knows how to bring them up he is just phenomenal when I was at GMBS we took the kids out west one one uh, winter early in the winter for West Yellowstone and we drove out driving out with a bunch of kids in a van and you know, and the kids tend to complain and never. Whenever Fred came out with us, and he had those kids, they were just—I mean, it was just unbelievable how he kept them psyched up, always positive, all the time. And the guy is the guy is great, and um, he, he's just just a fabulous person. He'll give you the shirt off his back. I've been involved in many different um, circles, you know, like the military, like Marine Corps, which is pretty legendary, um, uh, outdoor, you know, all the, a lot of different circles. And I don't, I've never been around people like I've gotten to know in Nordic skiing. And Fred is a, is a perfect example of an absolute gem of a person that, that changes lives and, and is such an, so inspirational to anybody who gets to know him. And our, our sport, I, I won't say it's full of people like Fred because it's quite unique and inspirational, but there are a lot of incredible people that we've had the pleasure of rubbing shoulders with over the years. Isn't it, isn't it amazing? Oh, there's, no, there's no question about it. I still, I wouldn't be involved with the sport now if it wasn't for all the people that I met. I mean, even going skiing today, just, it was just half of it is just going skiing and be able to ski with Peter Harris or going yesterday with Pat Weaver, blah, blah, blah. You know, and it's just wonderful just to, just great people out there. You know, no one's on a, no one's out in the orbit someplace. They're all down to earth. 
And every as good as people think they are, they always know there's someone better than they are, you know? That's so it's, 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 it's great just to, uh, it's, half of it's social. For, it's definitely more of it's social now for me than anything else. Yeah. Hey, let's get back to your career. So you graduate from Johnson State College. Did you immediately start coaching the program then, or was there a couple of years yeah. back, or what was that? Yeah, no, what, what happened, the Alpine coach left, and he was a guy by the name of Earl Morris. And uh, he, Earl Morris was kind of a wild kind of character. He would, just a, a little short story, Earl is no, no longer with us, but uh, he would do some, some crazy things, and he would kind of, go down to Ross and I'll get a bunch of Alpine skis, give them to the racers. And then all of a sudden those Alpine skis would disappear. And someone else on the team would find that they're skiing on somebody else's skis, you know? So we'd do all this kind of stuff. If someone wasn't getting the results they needed, he'd make up fake results or bring them to the race so they could get a good seed in the race. You know, so this kind of, so anyway, Earl kind of lived his life. I mean, the end of his, that part of the career at, at Johnson and they, I, they offered me the head coaching position. So I was the head coach. I was the cross-country woman's running coach. And uh, I taught uh, PE courses and whatever. So I was still racing at the time and developing the first Nordic program for Johnson. So we had a guys team that was racing in Division Two, And the women's team was racing in Division One. So the women's team was racing against Dartmouth and all the top schools. And I had a few people that came in as cross country skiers. The rest were really hot Alpine racers. And I said, hey, you've got to race cross country too. <laughs> we need you. So I taught like people like Judy McNeilis, Krista Eppinghouse, a bunch of really hot skiers that turned that did cross country as well. And they, they liked it, but they were kind of like, they didn't quite have the discipline that, you know, that a lot of the Nordic skiers grow up with. And, uh, but we had some great results. We'd beat Dartmouth and a number of schools on different occasions. So, and in the D division two, we'd always be at the top in division two, you know, and, and I had somebody else, the Alpine guy would take the guys to races Myself, I would take all the girls to races because we were going in two different places. I, we were on, uh, you know, we were going to all the uh, NCAA. I was taking the girls to the NCAA races where they were going to the uh, Eastern B races, the, the guys. So back then, I think it, oftentimes perspective is really important to give. When you started coaching at Johnson State, I know you weren't just a Nordic coach, you were other coaches, but but how many Nordic coaching jobs do you think existed in the United States at that time? It's hard to say. I don't, you know, the colleges had, had positions, all the colleges, they had uh, Nordic coaching jobs, but there weren't any like club coaches, right. any place that was, that was, they weren't, they weren't there. And so, um, yeah, there wasn't, there wasn't much at all. And, you know, so if you wanted to stay in the industry, uh, there weren't very many jobs in the industry either. Exactly. That was the the country was trying, was starting to get big, but it was still overpowered by the Alpine. It was usually Alpine programs having an auxiliary, you know, a, a separate Nordic program. 
Right. And those, those weren't that big. And it was starting to change around. They're selling a lot of skis, but they were just wooden skis. Everybody bought these cheap, no wax wooden skis. And probably about 10 times as many people, that, as many skis were sold actually back then as they are now. But it didn't last long. People put these on their rack of their car with their alpine skis, but the cross country skis didn't get used that much because they weren't that good. But the point I want to make is it seems to me that there were, there were national team coaches and then some college coaches. And those weren't generally full-time year-round jobs. Yeah. Um, that's it. You know, no club coaches, basically. Well, one, one, There's one program that was kind of started, started way ahead of its time and since. And it was Peter Davis that started the Linden Nordic Training Center back there. And he had a number of racers that he brought in that would go to the uh, Linden Institute, the, the kind of prep school, which is actually a public school as well. So they would go there and train under Peter. And Peter had just come off the national team. You know, he never quite made an Olympic team, but he was in a number of world championships and whatever. And I knew Peter well, because I raced against him in running races in college. And he was like, he was the guy to beat. He had the, he had the bullseye in the back of his back. But so anyway, he started this, this Nordic, Linden Nordic Training Center and he put on a lot of camps open to other people to come in. And I was one of those people that, I mean, I was trying to suck up any information I could. I, was, I just wanted to know about the sport as much as I could. And as, we didn't have all kinds of videos. You know, there wasn't an internet back there or anything like that. So you just, you really had to search to, to, learn, to learn things if you didn't have a good coach right there. And I had Mike Gallagher came to Johnson as a, my running coach when I was there, but he was always gone during the winter. But he, he took a liking to me because, you know, I had a lot of grit. He trained me during the fall, get ready for skiing and everything. Then he'd be gone or he'd come home and he'd, he'd come home with a pair of really nice skis from Europe, nice wooden skis, and they give them to me. And I was like, wow, wow. Then I go out racing and I break the tip off or something like that. You know, the courses back there were, were all kinds of bumps in the courses and everything. And, and so eventually I got better. And, and, uh, but Mike was, Mike was probably the biggest influence on me as far as Nordic skiing. You know, we became very, very good friends. And for those people that don't know Mike Gallagher, he was one of the, the big top three, Mike Gallagher, uh, Bob Gray, and, um, and Mike Elliott, Mike Elliott. Oh, My, yeah. So those were the, the, top, the top three back, back in the day. And then came Tim Caldwell and Koki and Galanis and, and whatever. And so something that you don't know, you know, I'm going to tell you about is that when I stopped at Johnson, when I, I coached six years at Johnson and I was offered a job with Craftsburg to start the Craftsburg program, but I was also offered a job with Elon Ski Company. I knew that. So I took over the job with, with Mike Gallagher and I, and we ran this, this uh, racing program for Elon. And at that time we had Stan Dunkley, um, uh, Peterson, uh, Doug Peterson and um, Jim Galanis on our skis 
And the other two guys on the ski team were Koki, who at that time was on Fisher, and uh, then Tim Caldwell was on Fisher also. Or maybe Koki had switched to Rosnall at that time. I can't remember. So how long did so, you so whatever, uh, Lon? So I worked for them right through the Olympics. For, it was only about a year and a half or so. But uh, got a lot of racers on it and, and worked closely with those guys. So I went on the World Cup with those guys. The World Cup was just starting. It wasn't, they had all the big races, but eventually at some time right about then, they called them World Cup races for cross country. And so I went over there and helped those guys out. And I was still trying to race myself and, and whatever. But it was, yeah, so that's, so that's, what, I, that's what I did. So I your think. time with the lawn was after Johnson State, but before Crassbury? It was, and I was doing Crassbury at the same time. So Gallagher and I, I went up to Crassbury and my girlfriend came up with me, Mimi Burnett. And so I worked it out with Russell Spring. He was the one that asked me to come out. He owned the, the center up there. It was, a, it was a prep school. And he had already started the sculling program and the soccer program. So we wanted a cross country program. So I went up there and started the cross country program with a guy by the name of Bucky Sheldon, who started the, he, we, he and I cut, out, cut the trails. He did the touring center end of it, the non-competitive, and I did all the competitive things. So I brought people in. We tried to start a, a, a full academy. It didn't, it didn't fly. We had a couple, pe couple people, uh, but we had a lot of racers that came in and trained with us and actually lived with us. And a lot of good racers and a lot of the national team guys would come and train with us periodically because it was a super place to train, good food and, and the whole works. Uh, so, so what happened, I was kind of splitting, you know, that, that Crassbury job and then the Elon job. But basically, basically I went to Europe for some World Cups, came back and it was, we didn't have any snow back in Vermont. And this was 1980 and the Olympics were, or there was 79 going into 80. So it was the fall of 79. No snow, no snow, no snow. They decided to have the U.S. Nationals that year in Quebec City, in Mount St. Anne. First time U.S. Nationals had been outside the U.S. So we went up to the Nationals and then I went to the Olympics, the 1980 Olympics. So Gallagher and I shared that spot at the Olympics and uh, you know, running the program. So we serviced uh, not only the U.S. team athletes, but the other people, other international athletes that were on Elon at the time. Cool. And so that was my first introduct introduction into the into the ski industry. And then uh, and then Phil Peck, you remember Phil, of course, who was who was still the um, headmaster at, at Holderness, and Phil Peck took over after me with Elon. And I kept on with the Crassberry thing for three years running that program. So we ran all kinds of camps at Crassberry. We put almost every college race on at Crassberry because it was some really lean snow years and Crassberry is the only place that had snow. So we had tons of racers and, and you know, I, a lot of racers got there started like Wesley Thompson. She's trained with me for quite a while up there and her sister Cammie and and a uh, bunch of top college racers and whatever that's they trained up there under our program actually we actually coached harvard for a year up there too so they would come whenever 
they wanted to be on snow, they'd come up to our place. And I, had, I don't know if you knew Brent Turner. Brent Turner was working with me too. And we coached Harvard for a year up there. So, so I'd love to hear your thoughts on Crasbury. I figure you must have busting with pride to see kind of where Crasbury is now, which I guess kind of is an end of a long, amazing journey. But because, I mean, it's such a finished product as far as I'm concerned. Can, can you give me your thoughts on, on Crasbury Outdoor Center now? Well, when I, when I started there, basically I worked for there for three years, getting the program going. I couldn't afford to work there any longer. It was just, I hardly making any money, uh, getting a lot of publicity because we're doing a lot of great things with the races and whatever. But, and it went for a number of years after I left, John Broadhead came in. John Broadhead, I had him come in as one of the guest coaches along with like Mike Gallagher would be a guest coach and whatever, and a whole bunch of people came in. And, and so when I was leaving, John Broadhead kind of took over after that. And Russell Spring was still running the place. And for a number of years, it got, it got better, it, you know, incrementally better. But it wasn't until the Dreisigackers, Dick, uh, Dick Dreisigacker and his wife, Judy Gear, uh, from the Concept2 company, they came and bought the place. And that's when there was an influx of money that came in. And they spent millions, millions of dollars, and they still are to make it, as far as I'm concerned, the, the best ski touring center in the country. And the best, probably the best training center now in the country, you know, with a, that has an old paved loop, you know, so it's, it's, it's phenomenal. I just got through skiing there about uh, a couple hours ago. And if you look outside where I am right now, you'll see a couple patches of snow here and there, but uh, over there, you're skiing on a foot and a half of man-made snow or snow that was, that they actually had covered up from last winter that they brought out. Yeah. And so now that there's cold weather, they're gonna have more trails going and whatever. But it's, it's just amazing. They have the green team there, the green team for cross country skiing and the green team for rowing. So this is US development teams, basic development teams for rowing to make the Olympic team and for skiing to make the Olympic team. They have a, they have, you know, really good coaches. They have a phenomenal biathlon range. Have, have you seen the range? Have you been up there since yeah. they put it in? Yeah. Yeah. And uh, it, it's, it's really a top class place. Even this, this summer, because there wasn't much going on, they spent a lot more money on the different buildings and whatever. And it's, it's, it's great. And, and they have a love for the sport. Their kids are in the sport. Two of their kids made Olympic teams and one's coaching biathlon right now. And so uh, the Dreisig actors have done wonderful, wonderful things for the, for the not only the, the, the outdoor center, but the whole area. I mean, we moved up here because of that. Yeah. And we aren't the only ones. Many people have moved into this area because of the Crassbury Outdoor Center. And also um, the, the whole economic boom in this area is tremendous because, excuse me, because of them. I've done podcasts with three green racing project athletes, and we talked at length about the Craftsbury Outdoor Center and its transformation. Oh, no, four, four athletes. So it's gotten a lot of airtime in this podcast. And the point that I keep making is to me, which I'm sure you agree with, I guess as American Nordic skiers, we look to Scandinavia, 
sometimes the Alps, but usually the Scandinavia for our examples and for how life should be in, you know, this, this way of living as a Nordic, as a steward of the world, environmentally, eco-friendly, um, at the same time also in harmony with nature and in a way that's so healthy. And I, I keep saying, we don't need to look to Scandinavia. We just look to Crassbury because that's such a utopia as far as I'm concerned. And it's on our soil and we've created it with a lot of help from the Dreisigackers. But I mean, as an American ski community, we all should be so proud of Crassbury. And I, I'm not sure that we are aware as I think we should be. Well, you know, a lot of people haven't skied there. They don't think about coming back to Vermont to Crassbury to go cross country skiing. I mean, more people are. I mean, on a weekend, it's, I don't know what it's going to be like this year because they're limiting it, how many people. The state limits alpine areas and cross-country areas, how many people can come to the area. But in the, like, in the last couple of years, you can't find, it's hard to find a parking space. There's so many people. The lodge is a beautiful lodge, great food, great place to stay. It is phenomenal. And you aren't going to find a better place that's better groomed than Crestbury. They have three piston bullies out there. They have plenty of smaller track vehicles for, for doing the snow. And they can move the snow around and, and they have phenomenal trails. Matter of fact, one of, I'm, I'm here, I'm 10 miles from Crassbury where I live. And a couple hundred feet from my house, from outside the window here is one of the Crassbury trails. So that's 10 miles away. And so, and that, that whole, this whole section of trail out here in Greensboro, I think there's probably about 50 kilometers out just on this section of trail. And then you get into their core section up there and, and there's probably another 40 kilometers or, or so of trail. To me, I mean, there's, there's Northeast Kingdom charm. There's um, Old New England, you know, the, the buildings and um, the scenery spectacular. There are a lot of times you're up on top of a bluff and you're looking at hills with more hills and beyond and, and farmers fields with snow on them. And, and you've also got a snow belt there, which is great. I mean, there are a lot of things, but to me, the core charm and attraction for me, for Crasbury, the trails, the, the terrain and the trails are unbelievable. You don't find yeah. those trails outside of New England. You do not find them. They don't exist. Right. And it's quintessential cross country. You're going across the country. It's like going to grandma's house. You know, it's, you, you go by farms. You know, if you looked out here right now, out, out from what I'm looking out here, you're going through this, you're coming down through a long field, through a long hill, and you're going out to these meadows, you know, with spruce trees every now and then. And it's, it's just absolutely, absolutely gorgeous. Absolutely. But another aspect of that is the racing trails. You have transitions and, and skiable terrain that you simply do not find in the Western United States. There are downhills that are so fun to ski on. And if yeah. you're good at skiing on, if you're a good skier, you can make 20 seconds of downhill on someone from the Rockies who have never skied on anything that wasn't paved in the summer. You know, it's a yeah. really different activity that, that it's like a playground for, for people who are really good on skis. And I really love Crassbury. And every time I go there, I take full advantage. I love it there. Yeah, it's, it, it's, it's wonderful. Yeah, I mean, yeah. we're skiing today. And I mean, there's a, it's only about, I think, two and a half kilometers. But uh, 
plenty of vertical where they have it. And there's a couple corners that you just hang on to your seat. You know, really nice sharp corners, but you really can ski and you can really get up a lot of speed. And so it, it was, uh, you had to be on your toes today, I'll tell you. So the, the corners you're talking about are certainly on the sprint loop, I'm sure, because that'd be on the man-made loop. And yeah, the corners you're talking about, let me just say this, the corners that I love the most at Crassbury, they generally involve a bump and then a corner with a fall away. So you have to pre-jump the bump a little bit, have the proper line or else you're going to go smack through a bunch of trees. I mean, you have to know what you're doing. Pre-jump, you know, suck up the jump, keep contact in the snow, have the proper line and then hit that corner, setting up for the next corner already immediately. And right. that, those are skills that you don't have, and it's a level of enjoyment you don't have in a lot of the United States. We just don't have the courses and the train and the... No, you're, yeah, you're, you're absolutely right. So, so I, this is a call out to people. I say, you know, after, after we get this COVID thing straightened out here, come back and visit us in the Northeast Kingdom of Vermont because you won't be disappointed. I don't know anybody that's disappointed that has come here. And you'll, you'll think that you're in a different country because half the people here is, are speaking Quebecois, you know, and, uh, and, and so it's, you know, you have people coming from, the people in Quebec know how good it is here and they have some great areas up there. So they come down here too. And if you do go out, you might want to rent a four-wheel drive, assuming you're going out in the winter. Yeah, yeah, def definitely. You know, that's, that's the Subaru is the Vermont State car. Yeah. <laughs> here's, a, here's an example of the contrast. I don't want to call out the, the but um, I've lived in Utah for many years now. Of course, I did live in Vermont for many years. And there's a Nordic center affiliated with an alpine hill. And I was, we, we skied there early season a lot of times. And they weren't charging because there wasn't enough, so there was about a foot and a half of snow, but they said the skiing is so bad, you're not, we're not charging. And I learned that they needed about four feet to uh, achieve what they consider to be proper grooming. And what yeah. they would do was, there were bumps on these, on these courses, and they would smooth it out so that they were flat. They, they needed enough snow to fill in the bumps so it was right. flat. And I was, I was explaining to them, you know, you understand, the bumps are the fun part. We like the bump, you know? <laughs> That's, that, that makes it more fun. And they're like, no, 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 people don't like the bumps. You know, and that's one thing I love so much about Crossbreed. It's impeccable grooming, but the bumps are part of the terrain and part of the, the well, if you will, the, um, the, the playground, you know, right. the fun part. Right, yeah. yeah. Okay. The, 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 trail, the trails, when, we, when, we, when I was there, we were, you know, we didn't have, the, we didn't have uh, excavators. We had chainsaws and shovels and things like that to, to get the trails going. But now, you know, they, they have the big equipment that they can get in there. And the trails are groomed, not, not quite as you would a, a beautiful fairway, but perfect. I mean, they, they mow them all. They mow all the trails. So they're just, they're, they're really nice. And it doesn't take too much snow to get them going. Absolutely. And, and there's something for everybody. So if you're a really good skier, you want something hard, there's plenty there. If you want to just take it easy, there's some trails that are just nice meandering trails. That's a key point as well. Obviously, there are a lot of Nordic centers out there that only have flat or only have too hard. <laughs> and, right, yeah. Hey, let's get back to um, the timeline here. So you went from there to Green Mountain Valley School and started the Nordic program there? And it yeah, what, what happened was um, a guy by the name of uh, Kirk Dwyer, who I went to college with, 
he was at he start he went to Green Mountain Valley School a few a couple of years before I did a few years but maybe three or four years before I did and he was he wasn't the head coach but he was the, oh he was a women's coach at the time and so they wanted to start a Nordic program because believe it or not they needed some athletes that would set a good example for the Alpine athletes <laughs> so some kids that were really dedicated and really had uh, um, you know, good studying skills and all that kind of stuff. So, so they wanted to start a Nordic program and they asked me to come in and that was a perfect time because I really need to start earning some more money. And uh, so I went up there and um, they said, yeah, start doing some recruiting. And so they gave me a little help with some scholarship money and I kind of got the word out and I tried to find athletes that didn't have a program but wanted to ski. And so I picked athletes from different, different areas. They weren't, they weren't in a high school program. They didn't have a club program or anything. So it was a perfect place to come and learn how to ski. And basically they did. They came out and learned how to ski, but it was racing. And so I had a pretty, uh, you know, I was learning a lot about coaching because by then I had probably eight or nine years of coaching. And uh, so we got some fairly good racers in, I mean, fairly good athletes in, or at least they are motivated. And I turned them into good athletes and, and, and some good racers. And I was there for five years and, and we had a number of national champions, junior national champions. And these are kids that came that, you know, basically couldn't stand up on skis when I got there. So I, I, felt, I felt good about it. And the program at uh, Green Mountain Valley School was, um, it was maybe a little different than the other programs because you could, we had a cross country running program, which I also coached. And we also, we always won the state championship for the smaller schools when we were running, but I never knew who I'd have running on the team because they'd be playing soccer too and training cross country. And so when it came time to the, I was always hoping that the soccer wouldn't make it to the States because then I'd have a better team going into the cross country. <laughs> and, and, uh, but so we always did, always did well in there. And I was also the coach of the bicycle racing team. So we had the, we were part of the prep school league for bicycle racing. So it was all, you know, Holderness, all these schools, the, the Lake region prep school area. and everything. So we went to all these races and we won the New England championships with that. So that was kind of, that was pretty neat. And we had a strong drama club put on a uh, big um, play every year. And so the kids, it wasn't just ski racing. There's a lot of extracurricular things going on. And so, um, yeah, I learned a lot. I learned a lot about racing when I was coaching. I was still racing a little bit at the time. Uh, and I, I always try to stay in really good shape because the better shape you're in, the, the more respect the athletes usually have for you. And so um, I, you know, I'd be coaching these athletes and, you know, once in a while, they I remember one time when the, all the, there was four guys in the team, they thought they were really good. And they said, Fredericks, you aren't anything. And I said, okay. We're going up the traps today to train. He says, see this loop? We're going to do the loop up to the cabin. 
back around all the way back to the center again. And I said, you guys space yourselves out. One, two, three, four along the thing. And all it is is a tag for you. You just have to tag the next person. And I said, I bet I could beat you just by myself. And it came down to the very end. And I knew that the guy was a little, he was a little, wasn't quite, he's a real he, a hammerhead. But when the competition was there, he tensed up too much. And it came down, I was coming up on it and said, I'm coming up on it, I'm coming up on you. And I, so I finally got the guys. And let me tell you, for the rest of the year, no one made any more comments, you know? So anyway, it was, it was a, we had so much fun. I, I, I mean, I did things at that school that I had never done before, like on our spring trips, and got uh, certified in scuba diving, did all kinds of things and we we kayaked a lot we rock climbed a lot and we went on a bunch of went on a bunch of uh tours so once a week we'd always go on a ski tour we'd always take a day off and and just kind of see what the other part of the sport was like so 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 it was it was it was wonderful and and the program's in good hands now with with uh uh, Colin Rogers, and, and he's, he seems to be doing a great, I just was talking with him yesterday. It's always great to see him and see how the program's doing. So it was wonderful being there. And it was a real, it was, a, it was like being part of a big family. For sure. Did you go straight from Green Mountain Valley School to Rossignol? Yeah, so what happened is I was at there and I was, uh, during the summer, one of the summers, I was um, with my girlfriend and we were at the Dick Dreisigacher and Judy Gears wedding. And we're driving home and some car, we're going around the corner, some car spun out and took us out totally. And I was in a, we were in a sports car and it was a really bad accident. And I, so I crushed everything from, I, they took me like three hours to get me out of the car. Because right. they had the jaws of life, and my girlfriend had a really, very serious head injury, and so I had a hard time even walking for a long time after that. Mm -hmm. and, and and so I actually went back to live with my mother, which was a tough one, being at that age. And and so I, she lived on the lake, and I I kayaked to stay in shape, and had a wheelchair and everything. One morning I got out uh, on my wheelchair and went out to get the mail and there was sitting in the in the driveway was a concept two rowing machine that the drysig actors just dropped off didn't say anything just dropped off and i just trained on that trained on that and that first winter i you know i was still having a hard time you know getting around but that first winter i went to the world masters and was third in the world masters and and so i that was uh, that was pretty much was all in the head i my, i wasn't skiing very well you know and had a lot of problems but so that was the end of the that was the end of the um the uh, coaching at the green mountain valley school i hired muffy ritz to take my place i knew muffy quite well and convinced her to come out to out east and um, I worked at the ski rack for a year and Rosnell called me up and asked me if I wanted to run their Nordic race program. So I did that and in my mind I say well I'll do it for a year and 
see how it goes, maybe to do something else after that. Well, it was 20 years later <laughs> when I left the company. So after you took that job, for the next 20 years, you were at all the big domestic events and were mentoring, cajoling, encouraging, coaching. I mean, um, we, I, I started working with you. Basically, you sponsored me starting in 19, the fall of 1986. And that's when I got to know you. I had met you previously when you were coaching, but that's when I got to know you better. And then <coughs> starting in 1999, we worked closely together because Toka was a major sponsor of Team Rosignol. And we waxed and supported the athletes together. And the point I want to make is people today have no idea what things were like back in terms of the type of support that you gave the athletes. This is because now post-college racer development is really in the hands of regional clubs, Stratton, APU, Green, GRP, Sun Valley, BSF, et cetera. Back then, there were basically no elite programs for college graduates. There were one or two temporary ones, but basically there weren't any. And it was the ski brands that took this responsibility. I was looking through some, something a little bit ago, and I found a, a document from Rosignol saying the major goal of Team Rosignol is to provide post-collegiate ski racers the opportunity to achieve a higher level of competitiveness in cross-country skiing by subsidizing travel and training costs. And uh, that's interesting because something like that would never exist today from a brand, obviously, never. And, right. and what I know from what I saw, obviously, you did way more than subsidize uh, training and travel costs and equipment costs. You coached, you encouraged, you mentored, you you friendshiped, you did everything. I mean, you were amazing. Um, so I, I wanted to, I saw you also identify talent, nurture and develop it, and then reap the benefits of that. For example, Brooke Hubby uh, was a great example of that. <laughs> She really did amazingly, but I don't think she would have been anything in terms of Nordic scene without you. So I wanted to, so simply put, the, uh, the club system that everyone knows today simply did not exist back then. And everyone was on their own except for the support that the ski brands offered. I don't think anyone did a better job, close to a better job than what you did with Rosignol. And I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on that. So just from a macro level, and I'm gonna to get to some specifics here, but. From macro level, can you shed some perspective on that? Well, basically, when I took over the job, um, Rosnall is this big. It's a big Alpine company, but they had started a good Nordic program, and they had some good European Nordic racers. They had some world champions. They had, uh, uh, when you look at your silver forty-four skis, it said all the people on the ski that raced on Rosnall and. And Bill Koch was one of them. He had switched from Fisher to Rosignol. Uh, but there is a lot of good European racers on the, on the skis as well. So when I took over, the ski, was, the company was really changing with the, with the Nordic program. It was kind of getting into it a lot heavier. And, they, and the, my boss, the guy by the name of Danielle Mornay, uh, he ran the, the overall race program. So he was my boss. But he, he, didn't, he was Alpine, basically. And he says, you just run the program. Go do what you can make a good program, you know. So I would go, uh, so I would try to recruit the top racers. And at the beginning, we had almost everybody on the US ski team. There was only a couple people uh, that weren't on our skis. And 
it was just a ski team for a couple of years and we were we were going through uh some new changes with skis some big changes with skis and uh some revolutionary things matter of fact um i just happened to have something right here wow. Wow. <laughs> and this this ski right here was way way ahead of its time absolutely this this binding is part of the ski right here. Hey, Jim, before you and show more, why don't you tell us, this, this, uh, these skis were from, I believe they came out in 1986? The first time? Uh, yeah, that, that's uh, 86, trying to think. Could, could be, I, I, to tell you the truth, I can't. They were, the, they were the first skis to come out after they stopped making the Silver 44s. Yeah, the Delta the they made the Nordic concept, but they also were making the sandwich uh, Delta ski Delta without the concept. Right. But, but these came out that same time. It was the winter of 86, 87. Right. was that winter. And I remember I never got a pair and I was dying for them because they were the coolest thing out there. But it's important when you're showing those for people to realize that this is 86, 1986. So yeah, show us the skis and the boots again, please, and the bindings. So this is, this is the, if you look at the ski, you can see that the bindings of Solomon's are very similar to this ridge that the ski is made of, but the ridge is part of the ski, okay? And this came about because Rosnall wanted an Alpine patent from Solomon and they traded. They traded, their, Solomon gave us some rights and we gave them some rights and they came up with this, this, uh, this binding and uh, ski concept. And the ski itself is a little wider at the tip and it tapers back. And the whole idea for that was when you got on your edge, the ski would come in a little rather than taking off out to the lateral side. It would start to drive in medially. That way, you know, the shortest distance between the two points is a straight line, right? So they thought that it would help your skiing. And it was really an interesting concept, except in certain slow snow conditions, it was absolutely terrible. Right. But so the Delta courses had the same, a similar geography, uh, geometry, I believe, the same side cut. Yes. And, and that, that yeah. was obviously better for skating as too, not only offered stability, but the ski would stay with you longer. So you had a better right. platform to push off of and it, it would handle better on, on downhills. But the, the, the Nordic concept skis for starters, were, to my limited knowledge, the only three-dimensional skis that had ever been made for Nordic at the time, I mean, by, by far? That, oh, yeah, yeah, there wasn't anything like it. There wasn't that, anything like it. And, and that it was gives you, unbelievable. gives you an ability to control the flex pattern much easier than with just simple sandwich construction. Uh, and the, that was the concept. Right, but the there's concept. a lot of things in concept that don't turn into reality. Right. And what, what really happened at the time, the, the guy that was running this whole program, uh, it, it was like 99% being phenomenal, but that 1% was missing. Yeah. And, and it was a big percent. <laughs> and they just had to do a few other things to make it great, but it was so expensive to make these skis. And they, 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 you know, to get them on, the, you had to buy the boot, the binding and the ski. So everything together, you didn't have a choice of going to different companies to buy a binding from another company on another ski or whatever. 
So you had to you had to really invest in a lot of money to make the skis. And right now we look at the cost and it's not that big a deal, but back then it was a big deal. But I think perhaps another challenge for the Nordic concept skis was perhaps the bindings were not uh, integratable or shareable with other systems, like the N&N system that the, the Delta Course ones had. You know, you could share with other brands. Right. Yeah, I so think it might have been an obstacle as well, huh? Yeah, nothing else would, no, there's no, so the, the bottom of the ski just fit right in this groove here. Right, and I mean, then the, 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 the top of the ski would fit in the groove. Right, and the binding itself was also unique. Right, and so they were developing a boot, a Nordic boot, which they had never developed before, developing a ski which was off the charts that no one has ever even thought of before. And it was way, they got into it, too, too heavy, and the guy left the company, started working for Solomon. <laughs> and so the program, no one was able to really take over the program and, and bring it to another level. And so the Delta skis stayed, and they refined the Delta skis. And that's when I was working, you know, so I'd taken over Rosnell, the Rosnell race program. I had a number of US team skiers on the, on the product, but I also inherited, uh, inherited a marathon team, uh, John Ruger was doing it before me, and there was a bunch of Norwegians on this team, mostly from the University of Utah. Right. And But there was some other guys from other places. I then I recruited a few guys to be on this marathon team, and we'd go in these races, and they, they would just blow everybody out the doors, blow everybody out the doors, except if there was wet snow. These guys would we ski, they ski really hard, get ahead. And then these whip skis would plow so much. It was terrible. And so we, we lost a couple races because it was just so, the skis just didn't work with really wet snow. So and, two, um, you do the most memorable names, at least for me, from that marathon team, I think were Bernd Lund and Paul Schulstad. Does that sound right? Paul, yeah, Paul Schulstad, yeah, well, Paul had just, Paul was, um, no, Paul had gone back to Europe. I knew Paul from UVM. Right. And that's another, there's a really interesting story about that too. But, uh, but so Paul had gone back to Europe and, and to, um, to Norway and they had formed a marathon team. So all these countries were forming these marathon teams. And the U.S. was kind of getting into that too, starting to form a marathon team, a U.S. marathon team. Mm -hmm. But I had, so I had John Alberg, right. who was one of our best racers we have ever had in the United States, even though he was Norwegian to start with, but he married, he got a citizenship. John, John Engen, uh, 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 Paul's brother, uh, not Paul's brother, but Hans Martin. Uh, he was Hans Martin. Yeah, Hans Martin. But he was a little bit yeah. later. Yeah, yeah. Osman Drivnes. Yeah, yeah. All these guys, and and uh, and then I recruited a guy by the name of Tim Crane. You probably remember Tim Crane from from Massachusetts. Yeah, and, and, and so a couple other guys. Oh, uh, from Dartmouth. Um, oh, uh, he got killed in a car accident. Um, he was really pretty good skier from Dartmouth. Uh, why am I not remembering his name right now? Um, he fell asleep on the way from a race. And he, uh, 
I'm coming home from a race. But he was he was on the on the team as well. And John Underwood from Alaska was on the team. Uh, John Sackett was on the team. Yeah, John Sackett, of course. Yeah. Um, yeah. So we had a that was just kind of like a marathon team. They could go to races and whatever. And eventually, that whole thing ended up changing uh, when I got more American skiers on the team and started to go after my own sponsors. And the whole thing totally changed into a, a giant. It's something that I didn't, it just got, <laughs> I, I, let's just say I never worked so hard in my life as I did for Rosno. So this is if I got out of the, this is something I want to segue into. Um, <clears throat> I believe that if, if people in this day and age would consider your job back when you say you were working so hard, and I know you were, they would think that it was simple and easy. They would think that between events, you, you work out and you make a few phone calls, checking in with athletes and maybe some sponsors, and that's that. And in an event, you'd kind of show up the day before the event, do a little testing, spread the word about what ski model and perhaps structure and wax are running, and, and then kind of be seen and then go home. Um, and I know better. You had an extremely difficult job, so I'd like you to educate us into what your job entailed um, in general, because you worked your tail off. Basically, I worked for Rosnell to give you a budget. So you only knew that you could go so far with this budget. And you had a budget for equipment, and you had a budget for um, if you wanted to sign racers, you had them on budget, and then you had a budget for victory schedules. So um, I, the budget seemed to get be going smaller every year. It was just like, you know, come on, guy, come on, help us, you know. But it all depend on how the Alpine program was doing as far as sales on what you would get for a Nordic budget. Even though Nordic sales might be really good, they didn't make up for what was happening in Alpine. So one of these times, one of the years, my boss would say, uh, Jim, come into the office. I want to, to speak to you. He says, uh, I got the good news and I got the bad news. He says, uh, the, I said, give me the bad news first. He says, no pay raise this year. And he said, and he says but you get to keep your job. <laughs> and so that was the type of thing that I was up against them. So I figured I needed to get some sponsors to help the program out. But basically the program was I had to find the, people, the best racers to recruit. And you go around to races, you try to find these races, you know, you look at people. And you not only find the, look for the fastest racers, but you look for the racers that you know can represent the product. Not someone that has the bad race and throws their skis on the ground, you know. And you, I wanted to have racers that I could work with that I have a personal relationship with. Because life is too short to work with prima donnas. And so I try to find the best races to work with. What I do in, during the summer is I'd be going to Europe, testing skis with the Europeans, try to work on product development, give them ideas about product development, which they never often took, but once in a while they would. Or they did, and then they'd say it was their idea or whatever. But, that, that it, and this has changed a lot since then. This was the early years. Yeah. And uh, then uh, I pick out all the skis for the racers, get all the skis back to the United States, 
uh, make sure all the racers, you know, filled out their forms, had everything in, then you had all your information on the racers, pick out all the racers' equipment. I take every pair of skis. I would stone ground every pair of skis myself. I mount every pair of skis myself. I put them in the Toko wax box, every pair of skis, make sure they're all waxed up. Uh, and then we would go, we had a system of marking the skis. Europe didn't want to mark the skis as far as, uh, not, the, not the race stock skis, but the regular race skis. Uh, I had to be in charge of having all the skis that came into the United States, testing every freaking pair of skis and marking all the, all the data on those skis so we knew what the, who those skis would be best for when the when they were being sold, especially in the shops. And so that was some of the things I, I did. But basically, it was uh, after that, in the summers, I'd be on constant trying to, trying to work with sponsors, trying to find new sponsors. And you don't find sponsors unless you can offer them something. So you have to have good publicity with these racers. And to have good publicity, it can't only be racing. It had to be more than that. It had to be giving clinics on snow, it had to be giving wax clinics, uh, it had to be all different types of promotions, which we did. And it's setting up all the promotions with all the dealers across the country. And then going to dealers, giving them, uh, giving the dealers clinics, giving all the salesmen clinics, not only in the United States, but Canada, and running forth back and forth to Canada and smuggling skis in and out of Canada from one side to the other. And all kinds of things like this. And then working with some, you know, international athletes on a first-hand basis, uh, like Miriam Bedard. I mean, I was working with her direct and, you know, and people like this that, uh, so um, there's, I, I cannot get into what it was like. I mean, I never left the, the company before 10 o'clock at night. And most of my training at that time was running around the factory from one place to another all the time and just making sure athletes had what they needed to have and it's and I had a lot of athletes and I kind of developed the program where I figured that a lot of these national team athletes it's great having them on the skis but if they aren't doing any promotions and they don't have time for promotions it's not giving the ski a lot of visibility and they aren't winning in Europe. So they aren't holding up the skis at the end of the race, you know, that type of thing. So I figured, well, let's expand this marathon team. And I just, I expanded it to include mostly US athletes. And then I also had the, what they called the local hero program. Because there was a lot of athletes that were working that were really good athletes and they couldn't travel throughout the, the country to all these marathons but they could do marathons in their area. So I picked out all the top racers that could race in that area. And it was a good deal for them. They got, some of them got free equipment. Most of them just got a really good discount on the, on the, on the equipment and they loved it. And I had uniforms. So I go, I design all the uniforms, work with whoever we were working with at this, the, the, uh, the time for design and make sure we had enough money to pay for the uniforms or they were sponsored. Most of the time, they were sponsored. And then set up the program. We go out to West Yellowstone, do the whole dog and pony show out there, do all kinds of publicity, make videos with uh, the racers, uh, do all kinds of posters for the racers, 
Um, and it just goes on and on and on. And then when you get to time, when after probably about middle of January, when you're racing all the time, or mostly everybody has their skis, everybody is going pretty well. Sometimes skis don't work out, so you switch skis over with other people and whatever. And then you're going to the races, and every time you go to the races, there's always clinics ahead of time. And, and all the racers knew that was part of the deal. If they wanted to get paid, you know, they, they had to do these clinics. And we did, we, I thought we did some great clinics. We did, it seems like hundreds of them. And, uh, well, you know, there are Toko clinics. From the very beginning, it was Toko. It, was, it went all the way. And, and, and you, it was great working with you, Ian. I mean, I knew you as a junior, I think. I was your first coach going to Europe, if I'm not mistaken. I don't, know when, cup. I, don't know, I don't know when that was. I can't remember the date. The first Polar Cup was uh, spring of 86. So it was 85, 86 winter. I went to World Juniors in Lake Placid and then hit Polar Cup, and that was 85, 86. So it was spring 86. Yeah. Right, right. And so... So I had the, the, the marathon team, the U.S. team, but I also had the biathlon team. And then to make things more complicated, we came out with jumping skis. And our jumping skis were phenomenal. So we had all the Nordic combined guys on our skis. And that's when the Nordic combined team, that's when they really start to shine and win medals. And so that was, uh, you know, there was just so much to do. So eventually, the really top skis, the guys that had really started to have really good international results, Europe started to take taking care of them over there. So I could kind of push them off on, on Europe. And so that's kind of the, that's, that's some of the stuff that went on. There was, there was all of the, you know, marketing, you're always working with marketing at Rosnall, but you're always fighting for the dollar, fighting for the dollar all the time. So there's something I never thank you for um, I never even mentioned this to you before, but I, I wanted to, and I, I think it's an opportunity. I could have done this without the uh, podcast, but uh, I think it's probably a, an interesting part of the podcast. So I actually learned a ton from you. And whether you know it or not, I feel like you're my biggest mentor when it comes to my business career. Mm -hmm. um, I learned from you the, the importance of being productive enough and effective enough to justify your position. All that hustle that you were doing was more or less justifying your position. You were, you were making sponsor relationships, equitable relationships. Like as, as a sponsor of Team Rosignol, you always gave me value. You went the extra mile always to give me value, knowing that, you know, you needed the, the dollars for the program and as well as the product and the assistance, but you always made it a good deal, you know, and, and it wasn't cheap, but you went right. and you, you hustled for it. And you hustled for, I mean, your bosses had budget. You had a budget and you, you hustled to make your budget bigger within your job. You know, like you would, um, you had an ability to perhaps sell skis to contribute to your budget that didn't hurt the retailers. So you did that very well. And then you had a, a way of, of lobbying for a bigger budget. But basically your boss said, here's what you have and you need to sell this much as how much you can spend. Go get her done. I don't care about the, you know, the details. And, right. and you went and ran with it. And, and you really ran with it. And like I said, you, I watched you scrap and fight for sponsors, relationship, revenue, to cut costs, um, everything to make your job viable. Because bottom line is a lot of people don't realize it's, it's, it's not like you had um, 
a job at a retail store and you've got the job and if you're not going to do it, someone else is going to do it. Or, you know, some kind of management job. You more or less created your job and then you, you justified your job by doing an excellent job, hitting your numbers, respecting the numbers, being creative, hustling like crazy. And, and I've learned from that because if you don't, in this industry, if you don't make your job viable, you don't have a job. Not for time anyway. And that's right. what I learned from you. You're, you're a very strong example of that. I'm very grateful for it. So uh, I'm I just curious if you have any comments on that. But that's something for me that you've been an icon for. And I well, like to that front seat. I had a front row seat to that. And I really learned from you. Well, thanks, Ian. You know, what it, whenever I deal with the, the business end of things, I always wanted to think, I always tried to put myself in the other person's place. In other words, what is it going to be like when that comes in, that guy comes in and sells something? It better be damn good, you know? And so I wanted to find out, try to find out what how, convinced that person, that sponsor, how it's going to be good for them, you know? And that's, that's the most important thing. I'm just not coming up with a red, white, and blue sponsorship proposal, you know? And, and so, and, and I wanted to make the sponsors feel like it, was a, it wasn't a one-year thing. It was a long-range thing. And we held on to sponsors. We did a good job holding on to sponsors. Matter of fact, the last couple of years I was there, I didn't get an equipment budget. All the money came from sponsors. Right. You know, I had, I had money for my – I got my salary, and there was some money for win schedules uh, on the – on the Europe wind schedules and, and national wind schedules, but everything else was money I raised for that program. And I was proud of it, I was proud of it. But the most important thing was, you know, I worked with all kinds of different athletes and I, I mean, I look at the US ski team now and, and I look at, you know, uh, Matt Wickham, you know, I worked with him during college. I worked with a lot of college athletes. I got to know all the college coaches and I'm still good friends with, with, all, with, the, co with the college coaches. And, you know, I'm thinking about, you know, Matt Wickham and, and Chris Grover. I work with Chris as well. And I just, whenever I go, I see these people. And then people come up to me. And, and you know, like Kathy Maddock came up to me. She says, Jim, you know, you taught me how to ski. And I said, I did? She says, yeah, back in Crassbury. You know, and I, so there's so many things I forget along the way because there's just so many people. I don't forget the people for sure. You know, and it's so, and, and there were times when you didn't want to pick up a racer. You liked the racer, but you knew they'd be a pain in the butt to work with. Yeah. And so I just said, I don't want to pick them up. I'd rather have them as a friend, you know, than, than to pick them up. And, and so, yeah, so that's kind of the way it was. Jim, we've got a ton to talk about still, at least that I'd like to talk with you about. Yeah, sure. Um, since 1986, I'm just picking that date because that's kind of when skating more took off. Um, and I think it's interesting to consider the product revolution as re with respect to skating as compared to classic, because classic, you didn't see that, um, that rapid development curve that you did in skating, of course. So that's what I wanted to bring up skating. And since 96, there's been a ton of innovation with respect to Nordic ski equipment. Can you talk about today's skis, for example, compared to what we were skiing on back in 1986? This is, you know, Delta course skating skis, uh, Nordic concept, but um, I, I think there's a lot to consider, just the tremendous revolution that's gone on. Well, the skis are a lot more, 
they aren't necessarily more expensive to produce because they really aren't more expensive to, to produce than they were before. But the way they're producing them, they can control them better now. And so they can get a better, they can get a better product than they could before. I, I think you're, you were saying that your favorite ski was a silver 44. One of them. And, yeah. yeah, but there is a lot of silver. They have the acrylic model and they had the, 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 the acrylic uh, core model and they had a honeycomb model. I'm talking honeycomb. Yeah, honeycomb were the great ones. The acrylic core ones, they weren't, they weren't very good. Yeah, so, so as they got into the honeycomb uh, layup on skis, the skis really started to develop quite a bit. And they're still using honeycomb in a lot of the skis uh, or just a really light wood core in the skis. And the, the uh, machines they have, the type of bases they have, the whole production of the skis, they can do things now that they could never do before. One of the greatest, one of the big technological advancements that we made in skis other than the original uh, concept too was a dual tech ski where they took a cap ski and they had a box construction ski kind of underneath. So I had a cap on top of box construction uh, down below. And the regular cap skis were really cheap to make. So those original cap skis that you saw with all the companies were very, very cheap, but you couldn't get the, uh, the type of flex that you wanted to get. And so we came up with a dual tech, which was a box construction ski with a cap on top of it. And we had some really, some really excellent skis then. Very good skis. You talking about the first generation Axioms? Yes, exactly, exactly. It's really funny. I, I run into an old biathlete skiing uh, just a couple of days ago here at Crassbury. He's not that old, but he was on a British team. And he's still skiing on one, <laughs> one pair of those. He was, a, he wow. was on the Olympic team. And, uh, and so I, I said, wow, those are still holding together after all these years. Yeah, so those were, those were great skis. And, but I think right now, I think Rosnall is making the best product that they have ever made. I agree. I mean, I, I, I think they're phenomenal. I think that they, uh, the consistency is so much better and they've really, they've really geared in and we've had so, so many great results. I mean, just in the last, just this past weekend, all the wins were on Rosnall, men's and women's in both races. And so it's, we don't sponsor a lot of races, you know, so when everybody totals up their medals, you know, Fisher might sponsor 80% of the rare, 70% of the racers out there. We used to sponsor maybe 10%, but if you take how many medals we win with that small group, then, you know, it's, it's really, really high. And I, it's funny that I still say we. I, just, I don't work yeah. for Rosnell yeah. anymore, but Rosnell was re a real family for me. And uh, Rosnell was, very, was a very good company. It's still a very good company. So I want to talk about, uh, Rosnell is a French company. Yes. And you work closely with the French. Uh, like you mentioned, Danielle, before, but you worked closely for the French for many years. Did you ever deal with any kind of interesting culture clashes? Oh, <laughs> you better believe it. <laughs> uh, for a while, for a while, we had someone running the race department over there that, and I'm not going to mention any names because he's still in the ski industry. <laughs> and um, 
his way was the only way. And he would just go, he doesn't work for Rosenhall anymore. And he, he made it so hard for me. He almost didn't want me to succeed with my races. It got that to be, so I have races, I take care of those races, they go to Europe. As soon as they're in Europe, they're supposed to be taken care of by him because I still run the US program. And they hated him. He was terrible with them. He was so negative with them. And so it, was, it really is a bad hit to my program for a number of years. Is this so, fucking late 90s, early 2000s? Yeah. yeah you I know, know who yeah, I do. <laughs> and, you know, and it's very Napoleonish. <laughs> and, and so, but after that, things changed around for the, for the better. And, and everybody was happy. Everybody was happy. And so, but it was really tough. It was really tough. And, you know, I'd go over there picking out skis and whatever. And, and he would just, he, everything was made hard. You know, it could have been so much, so much easier. But, you know, I, my understanding of French, I mean, I know I, my French is much better now than it used to be. And, uh, you know, if you knew French, if, and, you not, and I'm talking Parisian French, not Quebec French. If you knew Parisian French, you know, then you, you're up a couple more notches, you know, and, and uh, but very few people over here, you know, knew French uh, fluently. And so, um, but I was working with, you know, I was working with Kurt Hoffler, and you know Kurt, and, and he, he, he ran the, the Nordic, overall Nordic program. I ran the roast race program. He ran the overall Nordic program. And, and he was like my lifesaver. He was, he was kind of like the guy that would go in there and calm things down between the two of us, you know, between, between the guy over in, in France and myself. And, uh, and so anyway, uh, things, got, things got to be a lot better after we're there, over there. And, and the guy that helps design the skis, Dominique Locatelli is still a good friend. And, and so, um, uh, you know, so I, I still have a wonderful relationship with Rosnall, many of the people there, and I don't regret working for them at all. And I, and I know for a fact it was the best ski company to work for. Let, let me ask you, tell a quick anecdote and then ask you a question. I worked with the Swiss for decades, obviously, you know, being with Toko for so long. And sometimes I'm amazed at their gross lack of understanding of the U.S. market and what we actually do here and how competitive our market is. They don't have a clue how competitive our market is. Once about only eight years ago, I went to a marketing meeting where they introduced the idea of setting up a pop-up tent and talking with people about the wax of the day. And they said they just started doing it and how remarkable it was because there's no one else there and, and, it, and, and you set up a tent and people actually gravitate around the tent and they want to talk with you about wax. And it, it blew my mind because it was so primitive and so behind the times. We've been doing that in the United States for over 10 years. And at that point, and we were pretty much the first people to start doing that. But at that point, at an average local event, there'd probably be five or six wax companies doing that exact same thing. And everyone was so used to it, they would, they would be looking for it, you know. And so to go to the, the Alps, the, the center of, you know, all this, and for these people to say, we have this new marketing concept, a way of communicating, setting up tents. It blew my mind that they could be so far behind the times 
and make assumptions that all other markets were so uncompetitive, like their market. It just blew my mind. And, and we've been doing this forever. So I was curious if you had this kind of an experience with Rossignol in France. Uh, the, the, it mirrored, totally mirrored what your experience was. At first, they didn't have a clue. Their idea of really promoting the product was sponsoring a race. You know, or sponsoring a racer. And that was it. They said, that's what we do, you know? And eventually when they would come over here for a national sales meeting, you know, they'd have the top guys come over and eventually they start seeing what we're doing over here and start getting the, you know, it's just, uh, the light bulb starts to go on, but it took a lot of electricity to turn it on. I'll tell you. Exactly. And yeah, it's crazy. And so, uh, so now they still don't, they still don't do what we do here. I mean, you think of what you do in West Yellowstone and how big a deal that is, or when we go up to Silver Star, you know, and, and uh, you know, Canada's into it. Canada's doing tons of promotions with demos and things of that sort. And, but uh, I, don't, I still don't think they do that much over in Europe now. It's, it's, you know, as much, it, you know, they at World Masters, they had some skis at World Masters when I was over there a couple of years ago like in Clusters. Um, but not, not, you know, maybe some big events, but they aren't, they aren't, as, they aren't as aggressive. I think to a point, the difference is, in, to a point, only a small point, I think the difference is also the consumers. In Europe, people aren't, they don't want to know as much as they do in the United States. In Europe, they just say, well, tell me what to buy. And at least this is my opinion, and then they buy it and then they're good. Whereas the United States, they want to know everything. They want to have a good high level of understanding. They want you to edu educate them. And so our levels, the, the extent that we go to to educate our consumers is 10 times or even 100 times more than in any other country worldwide. And I think it's a reflection of our consumers, but it's also a reflection of the competitive marketplace that we have. You're absolutely right. And I think in, in Europe, people are just, oh, that's the brand. I'm going to buy that brand, that type of thing. Where in the United States, there is a little of that but not as much. And people are more inquisitive in the United States and they're more apt not to just believe somebody is saying, oh, our skis are the best or our wax is the best or something like that. And so there's always these little companies that are coming online that want to get a piece of the pie. You better go out there and defend, defend your turf exactly. and prove how good your product is. Exactly. And you just can't and talk, you know, you're going to do the walk. You can't just do the talk. And it's that entire understanding and perspective that is missing in, in, in Europe, for whatever reason, especially right. Central Europe, maybe not so much Scandinavia. Okay, so I, I wanna shift gears and, and talk about something else. As director of um, Nordic Race Service for Rossignol for many, many years, I've, I've seen this person. <laughs> so I know you've had an opportunity to witness a great many inspiring performances not at not only at the most elite levels of course you've had that as well but but also even in regional races or or just people you've gotten to know many very well over the years and then this particular day they go out and ski out of their minds do you have any anecdotes or examples that you'd like to tell us about that comes to mind yes um one in particular that i was i mean i was literally crying after this event uh, crying with joy. Um, 
a good friend of mine, Mark Gilbertson, who you know. Uh, Mark was a, was a school teacher, and he he skied. He skied a little in college. He was okay skier. He was a pretty good skier in college. Skied for uh, Colby, um, but not not top NCAA skier or anything of that sort by any means. And I see him at different races, and and he was starting to get better and better. And I said, Mark, what do you think? You would I could help you out if you want. And so we started a relationship, and I started helping him out, sponsoring him, and we worked together, and we did some training together, and whatever. And uh, so he was like really my closest athlete because he, he lived nearby and, and the guy is just a 100% person. He is just a fabulous guy. And he's not, he doesn't have, I don't care, he could be world champion and you'd never know it, right. you know, because he'd go up and still shake hands with you and, and carry on the conversation with you and whatever. And so Basically, it was uh, going into 1998 Olympics. And if you won one of the races at the U.S. Nationals, you would get an Olympic spot. And, you know, no one's looking at Mark Gilbertson. You know, I knew how tough he was. He was wicked tough. And I knew what he was doing for training. Because after, after school, he would roller ski home, which was oh, probably about... 15 miles and a lot of it was dirt road and whatever and every every once a week he'd roller ski up smugglers notch all double pole just double pole the whole way which is phenomenal and so i knew what i knew what the workouts were and he won that race he just blew everybody off and i'm on the clock you know seeing what he's doing during the race and i just can't believe it you know and I mean, I have all these other good racers on the skis. I have John Bauer, I have Wadsworth, I have Marcus Nash. I have all these great skiers. And I, you know, I'm pretty sure all those guys are going to make the team. Yeah. But when Gilby made it, I mean, he came in, I, I, I was just bawling my head off, you know? And because it was just so, because I, I just, I put a lot of effort in mental effort and, and just the communication between the two of us was, is, was really, you know, we were really tight. And so um, that, that was one situation that uh, really, really shines. And then, you know, when I even, uh, uh, you know, coaching juniors, when you see someone that's working really hard and it all pays off and it's just like, oh man, it feels so good. And then, you know, like when Brooke, Brooke there's so many, there's, there's Brooke Hobby, you know, to see her do so many, well, in so many marathons, you know, not always skiing the smartest, you know, because she always thought she was the strongest, you know. She but, was, though. Yeah, she was the strongest. Yeah, you're right. Uh, and, but to see what, what she was, could do and, and, and uh, you know, so there are so many things like that that would pop up. And, uh, and to see a bunch of your racers just take, you know, boom, boom, win, win right, right after another, one, two, and three. And, whatever was, was fabulous. But Mark, Mark really stands out. And I was just working out down in the basement. We have a little gym down there and there's a, a big, his bib, you know, this autograph to me from the Olympics, you know, and uh, it's just, it, it was sit there, you know, it, it's, it's, uh, and you know, Mark just came back from Saudi Arabia to get quarantining right now for a few days. So I can't wait to see him. You know? okay.
Yeah. Uh, another uh, performance related to Rosie Null comes to mind, and that was when John Nangan failed to make the Olympic team in biathlon. Yeah. yeah. And shows up in cross country and blows everyone away in the 50K, making the team the automatic it, birth, it, you know. Pretty spectacular. Exactly. Yeah, that, that was really something. And I, you know, John and I were close there, but we got to be much closer later on in, in, yeah. in time. But, but yeah, that was, that was fabulous. And being that you served the role that you did as, as not just Rosingo Resource Director, but really a, a development pipeline, and a, a super important cog in the development pipeline, it must have been extremely rewarding for you to see Justin Wadsworth and Pat Weaver and John Bauer excel in 2002 Olympic Games. Oh, yeah, definitely. Definitely. I mean, they were top eighth and 15th and, you know, the top, top results. It was, it was, yeah, it was great. Unfortunately, it was a bad, it was a, it was a bad, uh, bad time for, it was a really bad time for me because uh, it was, I was laid up and from a, from a car accident. And so it was, uh, I was going through a lot of mental problems at the, not mental, but very depressed at the time. But it was, to see that happen was, was wonderful. Yeah. Wonderful. But but looking back, at, that's part of your legacy is the phenomenal results we had results we had in, in 2002. So, right. And then John and John Bauer was John. John and I got to be really. I mean, I got to be good friends with all those guys. Yeah. But some of the guys you just you talk to on a really personal level, and you find out what's going on in their head, and you find out what makes it work and what doesn't make it work, and and they ask you they ask you questions not about skiing but about life yeah. and then and you know and that and, and then you know you're really you know you're really close to him and and uh john bauer was was one of those one of those people you know and so uh, uh yeah I'm, I'm still good friends with a lot of those guys some of them i don't see very often but but uh it's 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 great hey let me ask you about john engen i know you are close with john for great many years we lost a great one, obviously, when John passed away a couple of years ago. I can see from my perspective, he was a super tough competitor. I mean, uh, you know, just steel. Um, very savvy, which is another important characteristic. Yeah. But also, there's another aspect of John that I think is unappreciated, and that was his sense of humor. He was often stoic, but he would say the funniest damn, like this dry humor observation that was oftentimes self-depreciating that would crack me up forever. Can you say a, please say a few words regarding John? Oh, John, John, was, John was a great person. And what I love to have John on the team, he kind of was one of the seniors on the team. He was a senior statesman. But he kind of, he would, he would kind of not wrangle people, but he, he, if someone needed a little talking to, he might just say one word to him, you know, or, or, or if he seen someone needs a little more help, he'd, he'd help out a little bit more. And then he'd always, you know, he'd communicate with me, which was, we had great communication. And yeah, he did have a great sense of humor. You know, me coming from uh, down over here in Burlingrad, he'd always call it Burlingrad, you know? And so he had these really funny names for, for everything. And, and uh, you know, he would, uh, I can't, can't think of them right now, but we had, we had so much fun and, and had, uh, we we go on some vacations together, and he and he and uh, Joanne and and Darlene and myself, and and we we really had we really had a great time together. He was he was a wonderful person that you know you thought this guy's gonna live till 
you know, he's 105, you know. And unfortunately, he got dealt a bad, a bad hand. But, um, but we, we, all, we, all, we all miss him. And, and I think he, paid a, he played a big part in, the, in skiing in the United States, to tell you the truth. I mean, he competed at a very high level at a very late age. And he didn't consider, you know, he, he'd go to World Masters, but then he'd go to the U.S. Nationals and still compete and do well. But he got really involved with skiing, you know, on, on different committees on, with USSA. And so he, he really tried to pay back, which is really important. A lot of skiers, you know, they get, you see what skiing can do for them, then they leave, you know. But John really tried to pay back in the sport, and he did a good job at it. And, and this, I mean, all those things, yes, absolutely. But if you're ever in a, in a mass start race and you look over your shoulder and John's there, as they say, you better pack your lunch because it's going to take all day. I mean, he's not going anywhere. You know, he's a oh, tough SOB. Oh, for sure. And so, I, I'll, I'll tell you a little story about John. So it was after the Olympics in uh, Alberville, and John and I decided we, I wasn't racing the Olympics, I was supporting him and all the other athletes. But we got a couple spots for the Trans-Eurasien, which was right after the 50 kilometer. So we hopped in the car and drove over there. And, and that was the first time we used florals. That was just when florals were coming out. Well, this is Navigal then. This is another race. This was the Trans-Eurasien, right after the Al Alberville. It wouldn't have been Alberville. We was using florals in Greece, quite a while before that. Oh, OK. And yeah, wasn't it? Oh, you were you were racing. Yeah, yeah, but we were using floral since about. Okay. Six. Okay, that's yeah. You, you're right. You're right. Uh, but uh, so I got to race, and they race. They they wax my skis up with florals. I know why it stuck in my head. I had never waxed. I had never had anybody wax my skis ever, oh. ever as a racer. Yeah. From the very beginning, I really never had a right. coach, really. I mean, Mike Gallagher, but he never waxed my skis, you know. And, and uh, so so we go to the transaction. We get up in the morning. They wax my skis. We got in the starting line. We got first, first place on starting line, whole line of guys, right? Pierre Harvey's right next to me. Helicopter comes down right in front. And Yuvang, who just won the, the 50 kilometer, he hops out and I tell John, I said, I'll make a bet with you. I'm going to beat him today. Now I'm going to beat him, right? You know? And he says, no. So we put money down on it. Because in my head, I'm saying, there's no freaking way that guy's going to fit a 50 on top of a 50. Right. And if he doesn't finish, I beat him. <laughs> And so, anyway, so uh, we st we started the race, and uh, and my skis were were okay, but then they started to get faster and faster. Then I bumped about forty kilometers into it, so bad, I I felt terrible. And I was going to drop out, and I said, "Where are the car keys?" You know, because we came to a place where all our guys were, and they gave me the car keys. Then they had given me something. I'd been eating a lot of figs or something, and it just kicked in like that, like someone giving you a shot of adrenaline. And I said, I changed my mind, I'm gonna finish. And I had a great finish of the race, you know, and John had a great race that day. And, 
and of course I, I won the money because, you know, because I beat Yvonne that day, you know. And so, uh, and then we had a great time on the way home. We got stuck someplace on the way home and, and uh, it, was, it was kind of a memorable trip. A lot of stuff happened and whatever, so. And uh, speaking but, of, in, the, in Amberville in the relay in the scramble, he was fifth. He was skiing quite fast then. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jim, um, panic waxing is a practice that is referred to as derision. You know, it's not a positive, um, a positive word, you know, to say, you know, panic waxing. Having it said yep. that, a last minute wax change can be very productive sometimes. When I think of panic waxing, I think there's a, quite a few episodes that you've had much success in, in changing the wax at the last minute. And I thought that you're probably the best person to ask of anyone I know that for, um, for some kind of panic wax day that worked out. If you're searching, for I, that, I can give you an example. Okay, give me an example. Remember the 2002, it was U.S. National and Olympic team trials in Bohart? Yeah. And it was just before the classic race started. And that was the first day of a two-day pursuit. So it counted. It was for all the marbles, you know? Yep. And, um, and right before the start, it started pounding snow. And in Bohart, you start in the stadium down below, and the course climbs right out of the stadium into a forest much, much higher. Right. And we sent someone up um, into the woods above the course on a, with a radio and said, test up there because we were afraid correctly that the, the conditions were much drier up just, just a few hundred meters higher than the state. Right. And then and we're talking just a couple minutes before the start, the word came back that everything that was working in the stadium was icing like crazy and to wax everything was blue. Kick wax, which we did yeah. immediately. And then all of our skiers, like Bauer, Weaver, Gilbertson, et cetera, they were all slipping and sliding and way in the back, leaving the stadium, going up that huge climb. Yeah. And I were thinking, oh crap, what did we, what did I do? You know, what did we do? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then this is a, this is a, in a one big loop and we couldn't see anybody. And there wasn't, you know, that many people with radios because everyone was panic waxing. Right. And uh, so the first time I saw any one of our skiers, we were waiting and waiting and waiting. Then you heard the commotion through the woods and I'm thinking, oh crap, that I, that I screw it. I mean, it was like back then the Olympics was, the Olympic team was, you do well in these races, you make it, you don't, you don't, you know? Right. And John Bauer came around the corner, and I was like, oh, thank God. And then there was nobody forever, which was so cool. This ski yeah. was fantastic. But that was a full-on last minute, on the line, no testing, just waxed right. and pray, you know. But it worked yeah, yeah. so well for us. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you just got to gotta go with it. You got to go with it. You take your chances, and you have to live with it. You know, yeah. that's one time it worked out, worked out well. Yeah, it did. I, I remember uh, enough, this is kind of this is a funny story, but we had uh, it was World Masters at at Lake Placid, and I had our whole Rosin all our, all our master group there, and we stayed there. We were having a great time, and it came to the relay, the girls' relay, and there's a strong Russian group that they were that they should have blown the doors off of us, and it was wet snow coming down, you know, and I said. I said, no way, we aren't going with wax. We aren't going with kick wax. And so I harried up the skis, just the regular skis. And they went out, or the first went out, and Muffy was, I think, Muffy Rich was the first girl to go out with, a, and with all the Russians and everything and everybody else. And the Russians way out ahead, and then all of a sudden, 
her skis are icing up like crazy and Muffy went by and the rest of our the rest of the race we had phenomenal races and they had just disastrous they were so pissed off I just couldn't believe and I just said I'm so glad we did you know we didn't wax but another time that we did change the wax and it really paid off is it was a marathon up at Craftsbury and we were going to it and we waxed up for the marathon a lot more well we waxed up for what the temperatures we thought were going to be right but we we're traveling an hour to get to the marathon we got up there and it was 15 degrees cooler right. and i said we got to scrape and we scraped we scraped all the wax down and we put really cold it was like 20 below or something something right. it was we, they was they should probably shouldn't have hold the held the race but they had it and we we waxed the skis i mean they're going out of the wax tent warm you know and and uh we had phenomenal races that day i mean if, if we didn't change if we didn't change the wax it would have been a disaster well we would have been with everybody else right but i you remember it, you had phenomenal skis and also there was so little time you didn't you could hardly even let the wax cool properly. You were just chucking them outside, and and they still were phenomenal. I remember the really, yeah. really good skis. Were you around? Were you there then? No, but everyone told me about it because they were so freaking worried about it. Yeah. And then you <laughs> and you told me about it because the, you know, we're, you know, whenever you wax with a cold wax like that, you want to let the skis sit for quite a while, yeah. crystallize, and I remember you just, just whipped them out because there was no time at all. Right. Cool. You just gotta do what you gotta do. Yeah. And you know that. And then there's, you know, always the time when, you know, everybody comes, I need more kick, I need more kick, you know, and, and you know, they, you know, you know, it's just panic, they, they're just panicking, and you, you know, sometimes you put some on, sometimes you don't, you know, but you always well, tell you me, you know. back, you know. Yeah, 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 right. Exactly. Hey, I have a question for you. Uh, it's more of a personal nature, but when I was 17, the first year you were the Rosignol, you gave me a questionnaire to fill out. I had been with Rosignol the year before with John Ruger, but he yep. gave me a questionnaire. And in that questionnaire, one of the questions was basically, what do you want to be when you grow up? What do you want to do when you grow up? Yep. And I wrote that I wanted to work in the ski industry, designing and developing equipment. And I, I, I don't know why, but I never forgot that. I mean, it was many years later that I started doing that. And I've been doing that for over 20 years now. Yeah. But I always wondered if, if, um, if that was a very common response, first off, you know, everyone was always writing that kind of a thing, you know, or it was just me. And then also, um, I never had any inkling that it might happen. I never had any connections. There was no reason for me to think that I could work in the ski industry in a product development capacity, among other right. things. But I'm kind of curious if you remember that, because but you know, it wasn't was that it, many years I later that we were working together. If, if I'm not mistaken, wasn't it, what are your short-term goals in skiing? What are your long-term goals? Yeah, also, yeah. I think that's yeah. what it was. Yeah. And, and so, no, I didn't know. Most of the people, no, it wasn't, very few people would say, you know, I want to work in the ski industry or whatever. And, but I wanted to get, the whole idea of that is I wanted to get a feeling for who I was dealing with, you know, and how much effort I was going to be in, I, I had to put in to support this person. If they're going to be in it for the long haul, or if they said, well, I'm going to see if I can make an Olympic team next year, you know, yeah. or if they're going to really become a skier and learn how to ski for the next 10 years. Right. You know? And that, that's what I was trying to find out because, 
you know, so many people say, well, my goal is to make the Olympic team. They get a lot of press out on it and they, you know, they, they can't do it in a year, you know, it's, it, you know, it takes a long time. I mean, you look at Rosie Brennan, how long has she been skiing now? Right. Yeah. You know, and now look at her results. You know, and she's not the only one. How about Keegan? How long she hit her head against the wall before she started having a great result? And to me, Keegan was the best case scenario. She and, remember George Welk? Oh, yeah, sure. I had him on the skis to start with. Those are probably the two biggest phenoms I've ever heard of in my life, you know, in terms of skiing talent and rising to the top so quickly. I mean, Keegan, it took her a long time to get to the top top, but you know, the amount of time when she started skiing seriously to when she made World Juniors to when she was sixth in World Juniors, making the Olympic team, and it was crazy fast. And not even Keegan could make the Olympic year in such a short amount of time. She and George right. Walker, the, for me, the, the kind of uh, development phenoms that I've ever seen. What about you? Yeah. Do you? Do you know of another person in that category? Uh, there is a lot of, lot of racers that could have done more if they had a little more support, I think. Yeah. Um, but there's not, there's not that many races that hang in there for a long time. There's a lot of races that hang in for a long time and they, they aren't as gifted. Okay. So they, right. they work hard. They yeah. got, as, they got as fast as they're going to be. Right. They just aren't going to get it, get any faster. And some of those racers probably stayed in a little longer than they should have. Yeah, you know? sure. But I mean, someone but, that, that that was not a skier, maybe talented athlete, but not a skier, and then two years later, they're unbelievable. Like like uh, like George Walk was like that. I mean, out of nowhere, he was unbelievable. Yeah, yeah, too. yeah. Well, uh, yeah, Liz Liz Steven. I mean, she got on cross country skis. You know, from being an alpine racer. Absolutely. And, you and, and, not her, and, and Laura Wilson, too. That's so what I'm I was going to say. The same you know, exact so, thing. Same closet right. and everything. Yeah, so I'm just looking at these people. I mean, they came, you know, if, you're on, if you know how to alpine race and you have some endurance capacity, you know, you're coming from a good spot. You're coming from a good spot. I guess you could say Muffy, too, come to think of it, based on what I know yeah. about history. Exactly. Muffy was an alpine racer as well. Yeah. But uh, yeah. I don't know about Jen Douglas. Does she fit that? I know Laura no. and Liz out of Burke, but I think Jen might have had a similar trajectory. Uh, Jen. You were better than I did. Jen's was that Jen was at it for a while. She I don't think she came from an Alpine background, but she was at it. She was at it for a while. She didn't. She didn't raise as. She didn't go to stardom as quite as fast as, uh, as those other girls. But uh, yeah, Laura, uh, Laura, and Liz were two that really, really, really took off. Yeah, and I and I just you know would, and 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 someone like Brooke Hobby, I just wish that you know we taught her we taught her how to 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 cross cut to uh, classic ski better, you know, and that that was that was the the downfall there. Can you imagine yeah. she grew up on skis? Well, she was an alpine racer as well. But I mean, Nordic skis. If she yeah, grew up yeah, yeah. Nordic skis. Oh, yeah. What an incredible athlete. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And there's, you know, there's probably a lot of people out there. There's probably, a, there's a, there are. There's a lot of talent out there that's never been realized and probably won't be realized, you yeah. know, until they get with a good coach and a good club and then, 
things things take off. Yeah. Hey, let, let me switch shift gears again. I want to. You and I share something. We both been blessed by this awesome sport and activity to the to the max. You know, if I look at my life, I have health and vibrancy. My career, which has supported my family over the years, my wife. I met through skiing, of course, my travels, my closest friendships, and many of my most profound experiences have all been gained through Nordic skiing. You can obviously say the same thing. In 1978, nobody, or even 73, nobody would ever have thought that such a career was, was possible. Can you please comment on, on that perspective as well as in how skiing has blessed your life? How grateful you are. Well. I look back and yeah, you're, you've been in it all your life, but very few people had the chance to do what I've done, you know? And, and I'm thinking, I, you know, I, I worked really hard. There's no question about it. I'm not, you know, I'm not the smartest guy in the world, but you know, if you work really hard and you think about what you're doing and you make the right choices, uh, you can get ahead. And I was blessed by people re realizing how hard I was working. And that's why I was offered different jobs because of that. You know, and, I have to disagree with that though. Obviously you worked hard and you cared. I mean, you were tenacious, but I really think that what, what was able to preserve your, your um, you were at it for a long time. You were able to do that because you performed. I really think if you didn't perform, that job would have been eliminated at some point. Oh, yeah, there's, 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 reputation. You, you there's, came through. Yeah, but when I, you get into something, I said, there's no, I don't look at if I'm going to fail. I'm going to look at how well I can perform. You know, don't look back. You know, I've been in a wheelchair two years of my life. Right. You know, so I'm not thinking about, I don't want to stay in this wheelchair. Only way is to look forward, you know. And that's the way I look at life is to look at the bright side and, and keep on going forward. And, and the one thing about working in the industry is, is the people. There's so, so many just wonderful people in the industry. And there are in the Alpine industry, but, you know, I think there's still a lot of passion in this industry. In the Alpine industry, I think there's not, is not the passion like it is here. And, and passion is everything. And I, I just have had such a passion for the sport. And I love to see, I love to work with athletes that have the passion for the sport too. And it just makes it so much fun. And it, 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 it's, I, the way I looked at it is, you know, work hard, but just don't take yourself too awfully, awfully seriously. You know, you have to enjoy life. You have to look at the whole picture. And that's what I try to do. I mean, look so, at your life with Joanne at the moment. You met, you met her through skiing, obviously. Right. And you two are two peas in a pot. I mean, you're made for each other from what I've seen. And, and you, you're, she's your play buddy, you know, you're yeah. <laughs> all day long. Yeah. Day. And, and look where you live. Right. You know, you live in this awesome yeah. house on the outskirts of Craftsbury and Greensboro there. And all day long, every day, as long as your body lets you, you're out there recreating and having the time of your life. I mean, you're healthy. I mean, that's just as an extension of the, you know, the latest blessings, if you will, that, that uh, Nordic skiing and the lifestyle and all your friends and very many dear friends. I mean, it's, it's, it's a reason to be truly grateful for both of us and for many others. Hey, 
You know, I thank the Lord every day. I'm blessed. And we're blessed. You know, we're blessed to live what we, where we're living. We're looking outside. There's no snow, but we can drive right over to Crassbury and stay on two and a half kilometers. But we know tomorrow is going to be some phenomenal skating. There's going to be some unbelievable skating on the lakes around here. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, there's always something to look forward to. And, and uh, you know, you look at other people in the world and you have, you have to feel blessed that you could do what you're doing. Absolutely. You. Hey, let me ask you a question. Um, I know that people are going to really want to hear from you on this. You and Joanne have been able to stay active and you are super active. I mean, you ski for and run and bike and paddle and you're, you're super, super active. I'd love to hear your tips on how to stay healthy, vibrant, and active in general, and if you have any ski-specific tips as pertains to skiing. Okay, first of all, um, it's always nice to have goals. It's, it's nice to have goals to work for, you know, it's kind of sometimes, how many times have you done a, a workout gone out skiing or gone out running where you really didn't feel like doing it. You know, you felt, you felt tired. It would have been easier to just sit down or whatever, but then you got out there and then you felt so much better. Yeah. And you're saying, Oh, I'm really glad I'm out here. And so thank God we, you know, Joanne, you know, she says, okay, let's go, Jim, get off your butt. Let's go. And, or sometimes I do the, the same thing. Mostly it's her doing it to me. <laughs> and, uh, and so what we do is because we love skiing more than, I mean, we like to race. We're still racehorses and deep down in our soul, but we really enjoy skiing. We love going different places and skiing. And so the main thing is, is to go out there and just enjoy it. Don't feel like you have, don't feel like you have to prove anything. I don't feel like I have to prove anything. The only thing I have to prove to myself is, you know, if I go to a race, I'm doing it so maybe I can get in a little better fitness level, a little healthier or whatever. Keeps you honest and a little bit. It, it keeps you honest, exactly. And it keeps you more connected with the sport and whatever. But just to go out and, and, and ski, I mean, I can ski a kilometer. The shortest loop from this house is 15 kilometers. Okay. And, and it's, and as they say in Vermont, it ain't flat, you know? <laughs> and, and so, and so we just, uh, we're just so lucky and, and we both realize that, but you know, what we do is we change it up. So we aren't doing, we don't do the same thing over and over again. I see so many people getting into the sport and they do the same thing over again, or they try to do the, the same workout, but improve their time every time. And as far as I'm concerned, I can bet set you up for failure. You know, and the whole thing is, if you aren't, if you don't have it up here, if you aren't psyched to go out there and do it up here, you know, and you aren't having fun, why do it at our age, you know? Right. At least my, I just turned 70 this year, right. you know? So, so I, I'm just, you know, like afterwards, we got to work out and today. I'm going to go down and work out the weights for, you know, probably a half an hour. And I'm doing that because I know if I don't do that, I'm losing a certain amount of strength. And, and I don't want to be like a 70 year old. That's for sure. Yeah, you know, you look, you look, you're saying you're doing better than most of the 70 years old in the country. And I said, well, 
better than most of them. <laughs> exactly. Is that is that good? Is that a pretty, is that something you want? Pretty you know? low standard, isn't it? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so you know you don't know what's going to happen tomorrow. You don't know if you're going to get diagnosed with this or that. So make the most of it and being healthy. If you're out there being really active, chances are mentally you're going to be healthier. And so th- that's what we do. And but sometimes, like when we're doing when we're competing in kayaking, which Joanne was this national champion, and not her age group national champion, national champion overall two years ago. And I was a, I was age group champion. <laughs> but and so we do these workouts. And, but you know, we change up the sports, so we aren't thinking about cross-country skiing all we aren't roller skiing all we get on our roller skis like in september you know and and so we do you know, hill bounding workouts we do exploring you know and you know with running in the woods all kinds of things like that and we get we get out of our boats but in the summer we're doing a lot of boating we're doing a lot of cycling uh you know some running not as much running because i want to save my knees and, you know, because I know how fragile your body can be, and I still have all my same parts. Um, Muffy. Uh, <laughs> That's what I thought as soon as you said that. <laughs> well, I, I hope you're watching this, Muffy. <laughs> and, uh, and so, yeah, so the main thing is, is to mix things up. And don't take it too seriously. Uh, if you're doing it just to show everybody else, no, you know, it's not going to last. Cool. Okay. How about this then? You've worked with juniors and elite racers for pretty much your entire life. Yeah. What recommendations would you have today for a young 17-year-old aspiring racer? What priorities would you highlight for them to focus on? Oh, um, let me think about that for a second. I never got to that part. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, first thing if somebody is really serious about it let's say they want to come into a program like a junior program uh ski program like a stratton or gmbs whatever you know you ask them why they're there and try to get a feeling for it but let them know that things don't happen overnight if you're new at it your results can go really you can have a steep curve you get really good pretty pretty quickly but then when you get to a certain point, they really start to level out. And you have to realize if you're looking at, you know, and someone says, well, I would like to win a Olympic medal down the road. And I say, well, it can be an awful long road, but it can be a fun road too. And it can be a very, you know, if you're inspired to go on and uh, it can be, it can be really worthwhile, but you have to realize they have to understand they have to realistically understand how long it takes and how much hard work it's going to take. And if they don't really enjoy the sport, in other words, if they're just getting in the sport for racing, chances are they aren't going to continue for an awful long time. They have to really love the sport for what the sport is. Mm. And so that's what I'm going to tell them right off the bat. And I'm going to tell them that it's all steps. It's all steps. And it's not always up upwards. And they have to get realize that when you train hard, you have to realize that you know your results are gonna maybe not be quite as good before you make the next big leap. 
you know, there's all kinds of things like this with training that they have to have to realize. But uh, you have to, and then another thing is, you know, when you're working with an equipment company, get to know the company really well, get to know the guy that's supplying your skis really well. So you're gonna get really good product and think about staying with them for a long time. Don't just go because some other guys offering you a couple more pair of skis or whatever and switch skis. We're offering a little better deal here and there. I've seen so many athletes near the end of their career switch products because they thought it was a product. But then when they switch products, the results aren't even as good as they were before. Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, you know, the whole thing is you have to love the sport. If you don't really love the sport, it's not going to happen. And that's why when somebody's just going into racing and not ever having been in the sport before the racing end of it, then it's going to be, they, they have to learn how, they have to go ski touring, they have to go out just having fun with, with a sport as well as the racing. Thank you. And, and that's, going to, that's going to go on for many years. Yeah, absolutely. You, you go out with your wife and your, and your daughter, and are you always racing? Never, pretty much. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you're going out and you're enjoying yourself, you know? And, it, and do you ever go out ski touring? I mean, just go out with no wax skis on and go. And I mean, we do that all the time, yeah. you know? And, and it's just so much fun. And it's just go, you know, this is a sport that you get to see nature, exactly. you know? And there's not too many sports. If you're working out and swimming and you're swimming laps in the pool day after day, oh boy, I don't see how that, I, it's, it just amazes me how we have the Olympians that we have that go through that. But after they get those medals, they aren't spending much time at the pool at all, I'll tell you that. Whereas, you know, you see people that are into cross country that even afterwards they're out, they're out skiing, having fun. I mean, it's just so fun, much fun, like skiing with Patrick yesterday. And, yeah. you know, talk about the racers and talk about what's going on and whatever. And meeting with a big group and just like, it's New Year's, what we're doing, we're going out for a midnight ski. Cool. You know, that's the deal. You know, come in, have a potluck, and, 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 and have, you know, just have a lot of fun. So that's, you know, as far as the, you know, there's so many things you can tell, you can tell junior athletes and elite athletes, but they have to, they have to truly love the sport to start with. Let me shift gears. Um, I know, you know, I've been designing Toko gloves since they existed, and I know you've had Toko gloves here and there for some years. I have so many Toko gloves. Okay. <laughs> but I go through them like crazy because I wear them all. I wear them out. Well, yeah. my question is, what's your favorite model and why? It all depends on the conditions. You know, obviously for roller skiing, I love the roller skiing gloves. You know, so that's all I use for roller skiing. Except when it gets a little cooler, I don't. I use a heavier... Glove, it's the one of the fleece, the, the windbreak, the windstopper glove. I, I love that. That's what I use. I use that probably most of the time because even when it gets warm, it tends to absorb the sweat a little bit more than the other gloves. The other guys sometimes get just, you have the thermal glove. It just, you know, it, it, I, I, you know it's cold out there. That's a fabulous glove. But that's what it's made for, you know. And, and the thermal knits, I mean, as you get older, I tend to use, you know, when you, 
when it's like zero degrees, I'm going out for a long ski. I never use gloves. I use those. I use the mitts all the time. And, yeah, yeah. And so the, the, those. I mean, that's all the two gloves I use as a total gloves, and they, you know, they're great. You're just uh, they're you know, but you have to realize what you're using it for. And that's you know, because the gloves are very specific for different for different conditions. For sure. Thank you. I wanted to um, ask you about your thoughts on the, on the U.S. ski team, juniors and seniors. We've been so successful the last few years. It feels so good for someone coming from your and my generation to see that. I wanted to just get your thoughts on that. Yeah, I think, you tell the truth, I think a lot has to do with the clubs. And there's some really good clubs in the country, some really good coaches in the country that, are, that have been racers in the past. And, it, and everybody's still learning. Everybody's learning. If you aren't learning, then you're going backwards, right? And so all these coaches are—they aren't afraid to, to, to see what's happening out there, you know. And so it, it nothing happens overnight. And now we're seeing the seeds were planted a number of years ago, mm -hmm. and now we're seeing the the fruits of our labors, and that's what that's what you're seeing, and it's phenomenal. It's so damn exciting. It's yeah. So exciting, and uh let's just hope that you know we continue to have snow and people are still psyched about skiing and and the economy is good that we can support these racers and so they can continue to do it for a long time and so any anyway i i think it's it, the club system is the as far as i'm concerned is the key to success it was unfortunately back when you know when i was running the marathon program you know, we didn't have that back then, and so that 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 served the that served the purpose back then. Right. And so I, you know, is this when I got out of the sport? When when Rosnell moved from uh, Williston, Vermont, the, the distributor U.S. distributorship from Williston, Vermont to Utah, and I decided not to go out there because I am a Vermont boy. <laughs> uh, that's that is actually just then is when it really started to change. The clubs were starting to grow, APU was starting to do something, you know, but it really made a big difference. And then it was, and that's when the marathon thing kind of just fell apart. And so, um, yeah, I, th I think it's, I, I think, I hope to help the club, the club programs uh, find good sponsors and can continue to do a great job. Absolutely. Here's a, here's a funny question that um, I don't know what we're going to get, but What's something about you that might surprise people if they were to find out? <laughs> oh boy. Um, maybe I'm a very sentimental person. Huh. And, I, and I, have a, I have a soft heart. Hmm. Uh, some racers wouldn't think that, you know, but uh, uh, yeah, that's, 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 that's me. Maybe, I guess that would be it. Yeah, good. Jim, do you have a mantra or philosophy that can be summed up in a few words? Um, I, I stole this a long time ago, and it's who has more fun than people. Yeah, and I've heard things, you say it a hundred times, a thousand times. I know. So it's, with, you know, and things are going okay. You know, you just got to relax, not take yourself too seriously. And that's what I say, who has more fun than people? Because that, 
Mike Gallagher used to say that all the time. And I remember many saunas after a good joke or whatever. That's what it was. Cool. Can I add one little thing here? I got to tell you about one experience that you will enjoy. Yeah. Okay. It was back in uh, 1980 U.S. Nationals, I think were, uh, no, it wasn't 80. It was a year after that. The uh, U.S. Nationals were in Waterville, 50 kilometer. And I was, my job was to take care of my top three athletes on Elon. And Stan Dunkley was winning the race at 50K. And Koki went by me after Stan went by. Remember, it's not mass start, it's all Sager start. And he says, Jim, I need wax, I need wax. Koki wasn't on my skis at the time. You know, was, he was on uh, Rosno at the time. But he was a friend. All those guys were friends. So I took out the wax that I knew he needed because he was losing wax. I put it down on the ground because you couldn't wax your skis while they're racing. Put it down on the ground. He grabbed it as he's going along. Didn't stop. Grabbed it with his hand. Lifted up one ski. Why he's still going? Wax the kick wax on one ski, lifted up the other ski, waxed the other one as he's still going, kept on going, and beat my guy, Sam Dunkley. Isn't that amazing? It absolutely is amazing. That's how talented. That's, that's my wax story for the day. <laughs> you know that video that they made, uh, he made with Rosignol, and I think it was the um, Nensa, but it wasn't called Nensa at the time. Um, the Nordic experience or something? Or? Yeah, you know, him playing around in the in the in Prattlebury or Putney. Yeah, 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 yeah. The one we yeah. always that how, how many of us watched that? How many times? Exactly. This is the most beautiful video and it just shows how not only the joy he had, but how talented he was. I mean, that's some old ass equipment <laughs> and some basically non-groomed trails. And you know what that that skiing that crud is like where you've got a little bit of a crust and it's a little melty, this and the stuff he was doing on those skis is amazing when you look at it. Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, what a talent, what, a, what ability, what passion. Yeah, yeah, that's, uh, that's for sure. Yeah, so I'm not surprised by that story, but it is, it is unbelievable. I mean, how many people in history could have done that? Oh, I, I, can, like imagine, that. I can imagine. Yeah. And, there's, and after that, there was an article in the New York Times about, that, about me doing that in the race to, and, and about how I waxed the opponent's skis. <laughs> Stan was like, hey, thanks. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> well, um, I wanted to thank you again for mentoring me and for showing me the ropes when it comes to carving out a living in the ski industry. You and I have spent a ton of time together over the years, and I appreciate those memories now more than ever. Thank you again for giving me the time for this interview, and I'm, I'm looking forward to seeing you around soon, hopefully. Thank you, Ian. I really enjoyed it. Yeah.